Our text is Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. It says, And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging Him, they will kill Him, and on the third day He will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now we looked at this same text last week, but I wanted to go over it again and focus on something that I think the text emphasizes that we did not look at. Oftentimes you'll come to a passage in the Bible and there are lots of truths that are being presented, but there's one main idea. In fact, when I was in seminary, my preaching professor always made sure that we understood the burden of the passage. So he would say to us, what is the burden of the passage? In other words, what is that central idea that God is communicating to you, the most important idea out of all of the truths that are there? And so last week I wanted to do some background Old Testament study so that we can get an idea of how the disciples were thinking when it came to the Messiah. They had false messianic expectations. I wanted to see us to see where they got those. But I don't think that's the burden of the passage. I don't think the disciples' confusion in verse 33 is the main idea. I think what God wants us to take away from this passage is that the humiliation and suffering of the Son of God was by the design of God. Every event, every human agent involved, every detail surrounding the death, burial, and resurrection came about precisely according to the plan of God. That's what I think the burden of the passage is here. Now, this is necessary for us to understand, lest we think that the crucifixion was some kind of interruption into the plan of God. It would be a distortion of the biblical witness to propose that somehow the betrayal and execution of Jesus was a mistake, as if things had gone horribly wrong. God wants you to know that while evil men conspired to do the unimaginable, that God had determined all of it to take place. And I think He wants you to know that from this passage. And I think He also wants us to be comforted because we can discover from this wonderful truth by implication that God is in complete control of every detail of not only what happened to Jesus, but what happens in your life and mine. Every blessing, 
every hardship, every struggle, the greatest joys and the deepest sorrows you have ever experienced, whether good or evil, nothing that has happened in your life or will happen is going to fall outside of the plan of God. And that should be a great encouragement to you. Now, regarding Christ and this passage, what we find is that His sovereignty over this world is not limited or hindered by human activity. God accomplishes everything He purposes and it is His will that remains forever. This means that every evil action brought against Christ was foreordained by God And that tells us that God not only knows the future, but He plans the future. We're going to talk more about this throughout the next half hour, 45 minutes or so. Now, as I say that, it should come as no surprise that not everyone believes that. There are some who do not believe that. There have been many so-called biblical scholars in ages past who have written and taught that Jesus did not know that when he was going to Jerusalem, he would meet a horrific end by crucifixion. There are some who have written and taught that Jesus had a plan to bring peace on earth. He had a plan to be welcomed by the religious establishment to save the nation, and that plan went horribly wrong. And rather than being received As the king of the Jews, he was betrayed, arrested, and tried, and executed shamefully. And in response to that unforeseen tragedy, these so-called scholars say that the disciples had to invent a story to make it seem like this was the plan all along. So the skeptics argue that it was the disciples who came up with this idea of Jesus' death being an atonement for sinners. And the disciples who claimed that Jesus spoke about these things prior to his death. So it was this conspiracy for these guys who were starting a new religion and their leader just died and so they got into a meeting and said, we've got to come up with something to make this work. Now, sadly, the introduction to this skepticism began in the very place of the Reformation some 250 years after Luther. There were some influential German theologians of the 18th and 19th centuries who became popular in disseminating their unbelief. These were men who rejected anything supernatural as their starting point, So they were sons of the Enlightenment and they were materialists and for whatever reason they decided to have a vocation in textual criticism and they went to the Bible and said, well, we know this didn't happen because miracles don't happen and therefore it must be mythology. And these men were very influential at the time. One German scholar named Ermann Reimarus argued in his work an apology for the rational worshipers of God 
that Jesus was nothing more than a failed Jewish reformer. His aim was to present himself as a political messiah who would liberate the Jews from the power of Rome and establish an independent earthly kingdom for Israel. That's what Jesus hoped to do. That's what his disciples understood was the plan. But sadly, they were forced to change the story when their leader was crucified. And Rimaris was merely one of many coming out of that era who came to the Bible with an anti-supernatural presupposition, meaning they started in unbelief. And you can't come to the Bible starting in unbelief. It just doesn't work. Now, such skepticism will always exist, which is why it was important that last week we established the Old Testament witness about the suffering Messiah. I mean, those Old Testament texts are irrefutable. David spoke of Jesus' suffering a thousand years before Christ. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ. Both writing with astonishing detail about the death of God's holy servant. And if Jesus had not come and fulfilled those prophecies, those texts would make no sense whatsoever. One way that God proves He is God is by describing events before they happen. And He does this in the Old Testament through the prophets. And He does this through Jesus in the Gospels. The suffering of Christ was always the plan. And coming to our text now, I came up with six observations that demonstrate that this was God's plan all along and that anything that happened to Jesus was by God's design. Sorry, actually five. I started with seven and then I went to six and then I brought it down to five because I realized this is going to take way too long. So five points. Point number one. How do we know that God is sovereign over the suffering of Jesus? Point number one. This is how we know. Jerusalem. Verse 31. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, it was not by some accident that Jerusalem would be the city where the Son of God would be put to death. We know from many Old Testament texts that Jerusalem was the place that God was to dwell with His people and that His holy temple would be the very location where God and man would meet. Prior to this, you had the time of the Exodus, so you had the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, and they had this portable tabernacle that they would break down and set up in various places, and that was the location. But even way back then, God told them, this is not a permanent setup, and there's going to be a city, and that city is going to be my city, and that is where you're going to come to know me. So, 
If you read through the books of Moses, you see all of these offerings and all of these sacrifices for sin described because those offerings are necessary if God is going to dwell with man and have a relationship. And God tells them that the city is going to be central to all of this. In fact, all of the Jews would have to come to that city at least once a year for this festival called the Passover. Just to refresh your memory, Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe, sorry, 16 verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. So this is hundreds of years before they have a temple. This is before they enter into the promised land. And God tells them in advance he's going to choose a city for himself and that's where he wants them all to go and to offer up their sacrifices. So once a year at the Passover. Down to verse 5. He says, You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. So God was very specific about this city, and we discover through reading the rest of the Scripture that that city becomes Jerusalem. It was the place of atonement. And of course, we know that Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament picture of atonement. So God delivers people out of Egypt. That is a type of the world. So that's a picture of God leading sinners out of the world. The lamb is slaughtered and its blood applied to the doorposts, which is a picture of blood atonement. And the judgment passing over those homes that have the blood applied is a picture of salvation by faith. All of those Old Testament pictures are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So Jerusalem and Passover are both theologically significant. It's not coincidence, it's not happenstance that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be betrayed and arrested and executed. It is by the design of God. And so this location of Jesus being executed is a picture of the sovereignty of God. God is doing this. This is God's plan coming together, Jesus going to Jerusalem. The second observation that shows us that God is sovereign over the suffering servant is essentially what we saw last week, and I will just call this written testimony. Again, verse 31. He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. 
So I won't spend a ton of time on this point since I gave you a whole message last week about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But he is talking about the Scriptures describing how he will be hated, he will be rejected, he will be despised, he will be abused, he will be executed, but also that he will rise. And that resurrection opens the door to the fulfillment of all the rest of the Scriptures that talk about him reigning as their messianic king. So when he says all is going to be fulfilled here, he's talking about not only the atonement, but also the resurrection and him being exalted as king. So, rather than this being the plan of a Jewish revolutionary gone bad, the crucifixion is described in the Old Testament. I had... Richard reads Psalm 22 because it speaks in detail about something that would be remarkable if David was describing himself. If you go through that psalm, it's it's remarkable how he is describing what takes place in in the Gospels regarding the death of Jesus. Now, I think it's impossible to argue from those Old Testament texts um, or, or to have those Old Testament texts in mind and say that Jesus didn't know these things were going to happen. It makes more sense to believe that Jesus knew exactly who He was, exactly what He was doing, and exactly what He was fulfilling. Now, one could argue, well, the Gospel writers realized that Jesus was executed and then they claimed that Jesus knew His suffering was happening all along. In other words, if you go to this text, some skeptic could argue, well, the disciples wrote this a few decades later and they just wrote back in there that Jesus knew all along. I mean, I suppose a skeptic could argue that. But if that is the case, and the disciples just made this up, why would they portray themselves as being ignorant and oblivious to His plan? In other words, if you're trying to start a new religion, which is what the skeptics claimed about the disciples, why, as the authorities of that new religion, would you make yourselves look like bumbling idiots? Which is what the disciples do over and over, don't they? In fact, when historians want to test the veracity of an ancient account, they will often look for what will be considered embarrassing details to the author because people are unlikely to fabricate details that would make themselves look foolish. They call this the criterion of embarrassment, which argues that you're more likely to delete something embarrassing about yourself than to put it in the text. So when ancient writers include humiliating incidents, it always lends to the credibility of the account because we are not prone to self-embarrassment. We try to avoid that. 
And the Gospels are full of the disciples looking foolish and ignorant. So if you're inventing a story about a man who gathered disciples together and told them what was going to happen in the future, you would not want to muddle the account by portraying your own skepticism. There would be no beneficial reason to insert that none of the disciples understood Jesus and none of them believed what he was saying. So you have uh, Jerusalem as the city. You have the Old Testament prophets and the disciples writing about the future before it takes place. The third observation that shows God's sovereignty in this account is Jewish rejection. Jesus says in verse 32, speaking of himself, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now the Jews are not specifically mentioned here in Luke, but the Gentiles are, and there are two people groups in the world, Jew and Gentile, and if one people group are delivering Jesus over to the Gentiles, that leaves, guess what? The Jews doing it. Add to that, when you include the other Gospels about this same event, it is very clear who is rejecting Jesus. Mark 10.33, Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. So, it is the Jewish rejection of the Messiah that puts the events of the crucifixion and resurrection into place. If you do not have Jewish rejection, you do not have a crucified Messiah, and you do not have the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Just as God is sovereign over foretelling these events, He must be sovereign over the details surrounding these events. For Jesus to become this sacrificial lamb, the substitute for sinners, the innocent one offered up in place of the guilty, he must be rejected by the Jews. He must be. Rather than this being some kind of failure, such as those liberal scholars believe, this has always been the plan of the sovereign God. How could Jesus otherwise become a substitutionary offering with, uh, for the people without being handed over? So the nation had to reject Him. And in fact, Paul spends three chapters in Romans describing the plan of God and how the Jews fit into the plan of God to reject their own Messiah. It's fascinating. Romans 9-11, through Paul is answering the question. He knows that there's going to be skeptics, and someone's going to say, excuse me, Paul, if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, why did Israel reject Him? And so for three chapters, he explains how it was the plan of God. And he says, 
within the nation of Israel, there is a remnant of true Israel, meaning the true believers, and they accepted him, the true believers, but the nation by and large did not accept him. And then he quotes the Old Testament to prove it was God's plan. Just giving you a snapshot of this fascinating argument. He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written. Okay, so Paul flips open his Bible now. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul quotes Isaiah, and he quotes Deuteronomy, and he quotes David in the Psalms. And while the Jews had a misunderstanding of what the Messiah came to do, and that is evident, they're being so wrapped up in their national politics that they were looking for a different kind of Savior was the work of God at the same time as it was their own hardness of heart. So this is where you have this fascinating tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So God is orchestrating events and and influences and He's leading their thinking in a certain direction while at the same time their hardness of heart is going to say no to the Messiah that God's going to send. So that we're not supposed to read the accounts and see them reject Jesus and think, oh, poor Jesus. Look what it says in verse 8, quoting the Old Testament. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, and then he says, down to this very day. So their sin was necessary for them to be hardened, but God was also involved leading and influencing and moving this around and that around and the people have this fascination with Middle Eastern politics and they're so fixated on their nation that they can't even see that their real problem is sin and that they need a deliverer from sin and death. That's nowhere on their radar and God is actually behind the scenes and He's at work orchestrating the whole thing. And then he even goes on to say, regarding their hardness of heart, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, For a period of history, God has put up the stop sign to the Jews. He has hardened them toward their Messiah. 
so that he would open up the world and invite the nations to come to Christ. And when the nations come to Christ, there is a number that God has in mind, the fullness of the Gentiles, when he will once again invite Israel to come in to salvation. And that's what he goes on to describe. He says, and all Israel will be saved. So if you want to look into this further, Romans 9 through 11, it's a fascinating study. God hardens the Jews to bring in the Gentiles, and through Gentile salvation, the fullness of Gentiles comes in and he releases the Jews from their blindness and they embrace their Messiah and both Jew and Gentile become together the worshipers of God in their fullness. So it was absolutely necessary that the Jews reject Jesus for the sake of fulfilling the plan of God. This was not some kind of accident. This was not some kind of unfortunate, tragic turn in the story. This was the plan. The fourth observation, revealing God's sovereignty here, is Gentile cruelty. Gentile cruelty. Verse 32. Jesus speaking of Himself, He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Now last week we saw these Old Testament prophecies about the suffering servants. So we talked about Psalm 22, and Isaiah 53, and uh, Zechariah 12. And yet, for all of those prophecies to be fulfilled, the Gentiles needed to be involved in the process. The Jews were under the dominion of the Romans, and while they had legislation over some things when it came to their people, in other words, the Romans let them run their Jewish society up to a point, but capital punishment they were not allowed to practice. And so since they did not have the authority to execute anyone and they were subservient to Rome, they had to persuade the Romans to carry out their devious plan. And how were they going to do that when you're dealing with someone who is perfect and sinless and blameless? Well, they needed to come up with accusations that would be concerning enough to the Roman government that went beyond their religious laws. So we see in the Gospels that the Jews have Jesus in their court and they examine Him and they bring out false witnesses against Him and they accuse Him of blasphemy and they say that He's going to tear down the temple and they twist all kinds of things and they determine that He deserves to die. And they take him to Pontius Pilate, and their reasons are not good enough for Pilate. He's not interested in their petty religious laws, and the death penalty is for serious crimes. So he refuses their grounds. And so they press it even further 
that this Jesus claims to be a king, and that is a threat to the emperor, because here is a rival king within the Roman Empire. And then Pilate questions him and asks him, is this true? And he comes to the conclusion that this man has done nothing worthy of death. So it's twice now. Pilate is looking to get rid of this situation. But to pacify the angry mob that is outside, he decides he's going to have Jesus beaten up really badly and bring him out again with the hopes of satisfying the people. And so the soldiers blindfold him and they treat him shamefully and they mock him and they spit upon him and they flog him. And this bloodied man is brought back before the people. And the people are still not satisfied. And so Pilate decides that his last option is he's going to bring out a notorious criminal and he's going to offer to release one of these men. And there's no way they're going to choose Barabbas. And they choose Barabbas. Now, it's a fascinating picture because what happens to Jesus, every cruelty, every blow, every stripe that was on his back was ordained by the hand of God. Listen to what Isaiah says. We, we looked at this last week. Isaiah 53.4 Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is 700 years before Jesus is crucified. And God makes it clear through His prophet that when that suffering servant goes to his demise, it is God who's doing it. Now, on the one hand, you have evil, violent, sinful men who are carrying out the will of their own hearts in how they treated him and mocked him and abused him. You have the religious leaders condemning him. You have the hostile mob crying out for his execution. And in every case, with all of these different human agents, you have them doing exactly what they wanted to do but at the same time, they did exactly what God had purposed that they do. So you have these two truths at the same time, but the one does not violate the other. It may seem that way from our perspective, but from the divine perspective, it doesn't. You have God sovereignly orchestrating all of these events. 
You have human agency who is responsible for carrying out all of these events because it's the sin in their hearts that's driving them to do it. And somehow, this divine mystery comes together perfectly where the people are not puppets. They're not all of a sudden a spirit comes over them and their eyes get glossy and they start doing things they otherwise would never do. And you have, the, the, the Bible is full of these kinds of mysteries. God gives, a, gives man a will to do as he pleases and yet God uses that will to fulfill his plan. He forces no one's hand to do contrary to what they want to do. And therefore, they are culpable for their actions. I mean, let's just say, I mean, what if Pilate did not decide to put Jesus forth to have Him flogged? What if Pilate never, that never came to his imagination and he just led him off to be crucified there's all these details in the scripture of what's going to happen to him in psalm 22 jesus foretells what's going to happen to him and yet Pilate thinks it's his decision the roman guards who put a crown on him and mock him think it's their decision and at the same time god says he's doing it God is taking credit for doing it. So God is sovereign not only over the Gentiles participating in this evil deed, but even in Christ's humiliation. The fifth thing that shows us the sovereignty of God is the disciples' blindness. Verse 34. This one may not be as obvious, but it says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, last week I mentioned that in this one short verse, their unbelief and confusion is described three times in one short verse. They understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Why on earth does it need to be said three times? I mentioned last week their blindness was related to having false messianic expectations. They saw all the Old Testament prophecies about the coming king who was going to reign They were blind to the prophecies about the servant who's coming to suffer for the nation. And so that's partially why they didn't understand. But I also think we can learn from this verse that it was God's will that they don't understand. Now why do I say that? Let's have a quick grammar lesson about this verse. The first part says they understood none of these things. That's clear. But the next part of the verse is a verb in the passive voice 
which means the subject is being acted upon. And it says, this saying was hidden from them. So Luke switches from an active verb to a passive verb. The active verb communicates their misunderstanding. The passive verb, it seems like something is happening to them. It being hidden from them. And it sounds like there is an unnamed agent who is doing the hiding. Now the reason I think this is happening here is because it happens a lot in the Bible. God is the unnamed agent who's working behind the scenes and doing something that is either revealing or is blinding. And this comes up a lot to where the theologians even have a term for it. It's called the divine passive. It's assumed that God is the one who is doing the action. And this is why I think they have confusion is not only because they have a misunderstanding of what the Messiah has come to do, but God has made it so that they don't understand. And if you think, man, he told us earlier to be discerning, and I think this guy is twisting the Scripture here. I think he's reading this into the Scripture that it's not really there. Let me remind you of something we saw back in Luke 9.45. Another time they didn't get it. It says, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask Him about this saying. So if you think I'm playing fast and loose 1834, you've got to go back to the verse 945. It's even more clear there. You've got this unnamed agent who is concealing something from them, and we all know that that's God. So God, for His own purposes, prevented them from laying hold of the reality of what was about to take place in Jerusalem. Of course, the obvious question everyone should have right now is, why would he do that? Why would Jesus tell them what's going to happen and God the Father hides it from them? I mean, is Jesus, is the will of Jesus and the will of the Father at odds with each other? Where Jesus does something and God's like, no, 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 I don't want them to see that yet. And Jesus made some kind of mistake? It just seems so strange to me. Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen, and then, of course, we have their misunderstanding of what the Messiah is supposed to do, but this thing is concealed from them so they don't get it. Why would God do that? I cannot say for sure, but I wonder if their knowledge of future events would cause problems and interfere or hinder the plan of God. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God's going to always accomplish His will. But 
is God keeping this knowledge from them so they don't get in the way of what God is doing? Maybe if they did understand what was going to happen, it would create problems. Any of you who have multiple children in the home, if you tell one of them, hey, I'm throwing a surprise party for the other one, you all know what's going to happen. That knowledge is going to leak out and it's going to mess everything up. So maybe the lack of maturity of the disciples to receive this message, God determines that they are not to receive it, they are not to understand it. It has to be a surprise to them also. Remember in another Gospel where, G, where Peter does understand what's going on? He finally understands what Jesus is saying. And he says, that's never going to happen. I'm never going to allow that to happen to you. That kind of thing. So then why did Jesus tell them in the first place, why is this recorded? I think this is a theory I'm not saying this is gospel truth. Maybe Jesus told them so that the Father would hide it from them so that we would be shown these things and that we could see, oh, this was the plan of God the whole time. Maybe this whole thing happened so that we recognize this was God's plan so that we have confidence in a God who is in absolute control of these things, so that when we suffer, we have confidence and do not despair, so that we don't worry when we can't see all the things that God is going to do. Maybe, just maybe, this was put here for you and me to trust God more. As we conclude, do you believe that God is involved in every detail of your life, both good and bad? Do you believe that there's nothing that happens to you that is outside of God's will for you? That when you suffer, when you go through trials, when you endure hardship, it's all part of the purposes of God in some way. Because it is. And that truth is meant to give you hope. Especially when you consider the alternative. There are some well-meaning Christians who do not believe God is sovereign over everything in that way. And they wind up with a God who doesn't have control over every aspect of the future. And they end up with a God who is not sovereign over all of the actions of men, whether good or evil. And I'm afraid that God begins to look a lot like the God of those German liberals I was telling you about. A God without foresight. A God without power. A God who is not in control of such things. A God who is shaking his head and putting up his hands and he wishes he could have stopped it, but he was powerless to do so. 
No, that is not the God that we serve. And as we sang earlier, who is like the Lord our God? <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you, Lord, that you are in control of nations. You are in control of history. You are in control of all of the details surrounding the Savior of the world. And we believe you are in control of our lives too. So Lord, we thank you. Please help us to have faith as we walk with you. Please help us to receive both good and bad. Please help us, Lord, to endure through trials and through difficult circumstances, knowing that somehow from them you will be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.